Greetings and welcome to White's Run Baptist Church. We are studying the upward call of God in Jesus Christ from the book of Philippians. So join with me by turning to the book of Philippians. We'll be in Philippians chapter 4. I'm very excited to get to you about these things that we're looking at today. We'll be focusing on verses 8 and 9 in Philippians chapter 4. And we're going to be learning about what we ought to think about as Christians. Because the mind is a powerful thing. It is a central thing when it comes to living out our faith in Jesus Christ. I want to remind you what the upward call is, is the upward call is taken from some verses here in the book of Philippians, in which Paul the Apostle is writing to the church in Philippi, a church which which seemed to be having a little problem with division in the church. They didn't have many problems other than that, but nevertheless, the whole letter seems tailored around this issue of unity, of Paul wishing them to be unified. And so he speaks of having the mind of Christ, this mindset of humility that Jesus Christ had. And he gives examples of that mindset in their service, Timothy and Epaphroditus. And he also holds himself up as an example to follow of one who has this mindset of humility. And this uh, results then in, in wonderful things. Now, we know that he's writing this letter from prison, And he has this great emphasis on unity and on the church being organized, unified in this mind of Christ. And last time, what we took a look at is he got right to the point at the beginning of chapter four and called two people out by name that were having some kind of a disagreement. And he urged them to agree in the Lord and also for those within the church to help in the situation. Then he turned his thoughts to rejoicing and prayer. And as we'll see today, right thinking, because these are the keys to taking on the mind of Christ, this mindset of humility. And these are the keys to having the peace of God instead of anxiety. And these are the keys to maintaining unity in the gospel work. And so those three things, rejoicing, prayer, and right thinking, are really the keys to putting this all together for us. Well, last time in number 13, we talked about rejoicing and prayer. This time we're going to talk about right thinking. And here's how I want uh, us to understand how these things relate, because these are, are subtle things and important things. If we take a look here, uh, we have as our uh, big idea that rejoicing, prayer, and right thinking are the keys to taking on the mind of Christ having the peace of God instead of anxiety and maintaining unity in the gospel work. But what I want to look at here in the beginning is this. Rejoicing comes from the heart. Thinking takes place in the mind. And prayer is what gets both these things in line with God. And so all these things are related together. Rejoicing has to do with what's in the heart. It also has to do with what's in the mind because the mind and the heart affect one another. And prayer connects the heart and the mind to God. Now let's read in verses uh, 8 and 9 here, Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. And we're going to take a close look at this. Uh, Here's what it says. Finally, brothers... Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we pray this day that you'll give us understanding of these things, that you'll open our hearts and our minds to what you have to say, and that you'll have your way with us, and that you'll help us, Lord, to practice these things. Help us to put into action what we learned today so that you can be further glorified in us, and we may be better equipped to serve in your great ministry. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in these verses, I want to point out something. I want you to notice the bookends. Now, first of all, there's a central imperative here that we're going to take a look at, and that's this word, think. Think about these things. And this comes in the middle of two mentions of peace. 
Look what it says in verse 7 here when it talks about peace. It says in verse 7, uh, after telling them about rejoicing and prayer, rejoicing in prayer, he says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So there's a great promise there of the peace of God coming to accompany those who are practicing the rejoicing in the prayer. But then he adds on this bit about thinking and he ends it again with peace. He says, uh, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the peace of God will be with you. And uh, I'm sorry, the God of peace will be with you. And so the peace of God, he mentions there in the middle when he says rejoicing in prayer and the peace of God will, uh, will be with you. And then he comes here and he says, oh yeah, and think about these things that are noble and pure, etc." And he goes, and then practice these things. So that seems to have in mind here, practicing all three of these things and the God of peace will be with you. And so there's a great promise that the peace of God will be with you in practicing these, but then he takes it a step further and he says, no, it's actually the God of peace himself will be there and he will help you practice these things. So this is truly about experiencing the peace of God. And even better than having his peace is having his presence. Time after time, the Bible promises that God will be with those who love him, who obey his commands, who are indeed his people. And the promise here is the same. Fill your mind with thoughts of him, thoughts of things worthy of him, and he will be with you. Now I'm going to explain this command in two parts. First of all, I'm going to explain the verb, the imperative, think, that you can see here uh, in the verses that we're taking a look at, this central word here. And then I'm going to explain the prepositional phrase <laughs> about these things and all those things that follow. And so first, this word, think. This word is uh, an important word, helps us to understand uh, what we're looking at here. This means to think, to dwell upon, or consider, or to fill your mind. And it's translated as think here. Most translations translate here in Philippians this word as think. Some translate it as dwell. And the Phillips paraphrase says fix your minds. And this word means to consider or to reckon or to count. Very often, the word has the idea of considering or counting. And very often, Paul has it as when you're considering one thing as another. In other words, that God reckoned or considered the faith of Abraham as righteousness in Romans chapter 4. So that's an example of how he often uses this word. But here, he is telling us to ponder, to think on, that these things and these attributes ought to be occupying our mind. He gives this imperative in the present, which gives a continuous sense to it. You know, in other words, he's saying, be thinking on these things. That's the activity that should be taking place in our minds. And it should fit, therefore, the descriptions that he talks about here. What we think about is very important to God and very important to Paul. Jesus shows us clearly in the Sermon on the Mount that, that God knows our thoughts and he knows our intentions. And this we know of him because the Spirit searches out all things. Nothing can hide from him. And so our thought life is important, but our thought life is also important for a very practical reason that our thoughts affect and ultimately become our actions and that our thoughts affect the condition of our hearts. Those things that we think about, those things we become. And the call to be a Christian, this is very important, is a call to think. Too often people suggest that faith is the opposite of thinking. The world often accuses Christians of being closed-minded or unthinking or irrational, but they only say these things when we refuse to agree with them and their narrow thinking and their worldly thinking. But if you consider what salvation is, Believers of all people should be the most thinking, the most contemplative people there are. 
See, without Christ, we are blinded by the God of this world, is how the Bible describes us. It describes us as dead, as following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, being led about by our own desires. In other words, being slaves to our own desires. Paul calls us slaves to sin. And so therefore, our minds are occupied with it. This is what we are consumed with all the time, is sin. But in Jesus Christ, we have been, as the Bible says, made alive together with him. We've been awakened. Our eyes have been opened. All systems have been brought online, and we have the guidance of the Holy Spirit and the perfect word of God as a guide to instruct us how to think about all things. We are called even to knowledge of God. Knowledge is a word that's used very often in connection with the Christian life, that we would have understanding, that we would have wisdom. All these things are related, as you can see, to our thought life. So we need this command from Paul in this area. It's vitally important, and it's a very crucial part of our faith. Paul commends the church at Rome for being full of goodness, he says. Let me take you to that scripture right there. It says uh, that they are, he commends them for being full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and and able to instruct one another. In other words, knowledge is of a value to Paul and to God. He expresses gratitude that the Corinthian church was enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge. He prays that the Ephesian church, uh, prays that the Ephesian church, that God would give them the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. And he later remarks in that same letter that the knowledge of God is a mark of maturity, that we would press on to maturity and that maturity would be a greater knowledge of God. Now, of course, knowledge in the Bible speaks of relationship, particularly with God. But when Paul uses this word, knowledge, in connection with our knowledge of God, he means simply more than just knowing God. He means knowing also about him, knowing what he is like. And of course, that is the true knowing of anyone, is to truly know what they're like. And he says here earlier in the letter to the Philippians, he says, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. So he was expecting the Philippian church to grow and in their growing for their mental capacity to improve, that they would have more knowledge, that they would have more discernment. And so it's very clear that believers are to use their minds. Our salvation is a salvation of our entire self, our mind, our emotions, our will, All of those things are reformed in the new creation that we become in Jesus Christ. And here, in this letter, in the pursuit of unity, of maturity, of peace, we find a command to think in a certain way. So we are to be filling our mind, dwelling on, thinking about these things. And what I want to do is I want to go through this list of things here in verse 8, and I want to very briefly describe them to you, and then we'll make application of them. I'm not going to dwell on getting too technical on these items one by one here, because first of all, there's a lot of them. But secondly, I don't think that was Paul's point. He was painting with a very broad brush. As Paul often does, is he will throw at you a whole bunch of words that mean almost the same thing. And what he's doing is he's making a point and he's making it emphatically. He's saying all kinds of things whatsoever are good. But he does get specific here with words that have distinctions among them. So we'll take a quick look at these as we go through them. So we want to think about these things. And we'll bring up that in the PowerPoint here. He says, think think about these things. First of all, whatever is true. And what is true is that which is in accord with reality. And this means reality from a biblical perspective. In other words, there's no lie in it. There's no falsehood in it. It's not conjecture. It's not mere possibilities. It's not something imaginary. Now, some people think that just because uh, we deal with the spiritual things, that those things aren't necessarily truth. 
that those are matters of opinion or speculation just because they're intangible. But although they are sensibly, that is to our senses, intangible, we can't touch spiritual things or measure them in a scientific kind of way. Nevertheless, they are no less real. And I've, I've said before, and I'll say it again, that our spiritual reality may be more real than our physical reality. And this is important. Now, some have put forth a suggestion in their research of anxiety and worry and things like that. Some have suggested that up to 92% of worry is over things that are imaginary or false or out of our control. And so when Paul says, don't be anxious about anything, but in prayer, etc., he he's in this context talking about anxiety or worry. And the interesting thing is that most of what we tend to worry about are things that are not really realistic for us to worry about. Either they're not real at all, or they're things that we cannot control. And so we are to think on those things which are true. Now, this is also important because our adversary, Satan, he is a liar, and he was a liar from the beginning. John, or Paul, (laughs) Jesus describes him as a liar in the book of John. And all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, we see that this is how he deceived Adam and Eve, and he's still a liar to this day. In fact, in the book of Romans, the, the fall away of man from God, whom he should be thanking, he should be revering God, but when he turns away from God, he exchanges the truth for a lie. So when we don't worship God, we've exchanged, changed, exchanged the truth, the reality of God, with a lie. So it's with this deception that God, that the evil one controls the world. He's called the God of this world. And it's described as a lie that is his final end game. In other words, as Paul talks about the last things in the second book of second letter to the Thessalonians, he describes a great lie that will be used uh, by the evil one, by the, the man of lawlessness and his false prophet, a lie that will be used to deceive the whole world. And so this is powerfully important. We understand what is true. Well, of course, Jesus himself is truth. And Jesus prayed for us in John 17, 17, that we would be sanctified in the truth, which is also the word of God, he says there. So those things that are true, very important to us. Those are the things of Christ. Those are the things of God. In other words, the reality that we live in is that there is a sovereign creator God who sent his son, Jesus Christ, to pay the price for sins. And everything must be viewed through these things. And we don't want to entertain anything that is false, that is contrary to reality itself. Now, this flies right in the face of the way our secular world wants to think. The secular world wants to say that truth is relative. Everyone can find their own truth and everything else. We know that's absolutely not true. Because try having your own opinion, your own truth about gravity, and then jump off your roof and see what happens. What you're going to find is there is mercilessly exactly one law of gravity that applies to all. And so it is with all reality created by God that there is a truth, there is a singular reality And everything that exists is part of that reality. So think about those things which are true and in accord with reality. Also think about those things which are honorable. This would mean worthy of respect or dignified. If if it were true, um, if this is something that you want to share, you know, this is something honorable, it's worthy of respect, it's dignified. And let me ask you this, if there were something about you that was true, you would want it shared in church if it were a good thing, right? You would want it shared in public. And this is what we are to seek in our behavior and our reputation, things that are honorable. Honorable things are those things we would not be ashamed to have them revealed. Now, it might be uncomfortable because if we're truly humble, we might not be comfortable with the recognition that it brings. But nevertheless, that should something be known of us 
to the public and that not be a strike against us, that's something honorable. That is something dignified. This word is used uh, by Paul in his qualifications for deacons, deacons and elders that would serve the church. The next word we come to is just. And just is in accord with those things that are in accord with God's righteous judgment. So we shouldn't be setting our minds on revenge. We shouldn't be setting our minds on any kind of discrimination or prejudice or judgment in our own eyes. In other words, we're not to judge. Now we are to discern and we are to test fruit and we are to exercise church discipline, which we have to have a certain level of judgment for that to be possible. But nevertheless, we're not to condemn somebody. We're not in that position. That is in God's position. We can bring forth God's word. We can bring forth what he says as the reality about things, but we ourselves are not the judges. God is the judge. And indeed, he will be the one to judge. He will be the one to take vengeance on all things. So we want to think on those things that are just. In other words, that align with God's sense of judgment and not our own. The next thing we want to take a look at is those things which are pure. Pure means devoid of moral corruption. Uh, pure, not evil. In other words, uh, the Bible says this of God. God is, has purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. And this purity is expected also in his people. They're not to have evil even mentioned among them. Paul encourages his churches not even to mention those things that are not worthy to be found among them. And there's a blessing uh, pronounced upon this in the Beatitudes by Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount. We see here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, he says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now we know he's talking about saved people there whom have had their hearts cleaned by God. But nevertheless, this purity of heart, which we cooperate with, which we work toward with the power of the Spirit, this purity of heart is pleasing to God. And in this pure state, we see God. The next uh, thing of, that we want to see here is we want to see whatever is lovely. Now, lovely means acceptable or pleasing. And in the context, this would be acceptable or pleasing to God, not just lovely to us, but something that would be lovely to him. So therefore, this is going to be focused upon character attributes and behavior, not necessarily upon how, how visually, aesthetically pleasing something is to our eyes, but what would be pleasing to God? What would be pleasing in his sight? These are the things that are lovely. This is the only occurrence of this word, interestingly, in the Bible. And then finally, there's that which is commendable. Something commendable is worth talking about. Literally, this word means good fame or good report. Things that have a good reputation, good as far as it's defined by God. Now, leaders are encouraged by Paul to have a good reputation. And in Hebrews chapter 11, those people had a commendable faith. Now, this particular word's not used there, but a synonym's used there. These things were counted to them um, and commended to them as, as good. And so they had commendable faith because it resulted in godly works. Now he changes it up a little bit and he says, you know, he changes his, his phrasing about these things to say um, those things that if there is any excellence, in other words, instead of saying whatever is, now he's changed it up to say, and if there's any, and here he says excellence. And excellence would be something that is morally praiseworthy. This would be the word virtue. Think about those things which are good moral examples. Those people or actions which, if duplicated, would be pleasing to God. This would be the things that we would be thinking about if they were things that were excellent. They would be things that would be, if we were to imitate them, it would be pleasing to God.
And then finally, he talks about the things that are worthy of praise. In other words, they are deserving of being talked about or commended to somebody. In other words, if, if it is something that um, would, be, would be worthy to repeat to somebody because it will result in more rejoicing to God, it will result in more praising of God. We should be very, very quick to share good news and very, very hesitant to share bad news insofar as good news brings praising to God and bad news can often be gossip or something of that nature. So we want to bring those things that are worthy of praise. Most often, we're talking about the praise of God for who he is and what he has done, much like we talked about the rejoicing a few verses ago. Now, taken together with excellence, this idea of that which is worthy of praise, um, if a topic or a thought, it has something that would be helpful to share with someone else. That is what we ought to be thinking about. We ought to be thinking about those things that if we could just take that thought out of our mind and hand it to somebody else, it would be helpful to them. And by helpful, I mean would draw them closer to God, would build them up, would encourage them in some way. And so when we take the idea of if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, those are what we ought to think about because ultimately... Those are the things that we're going to talk about. Those are the things that we're going to do. So those are, that's the big list of things. And I realize that's a little bit technical and I don't know by itself how helpful it is, but this will be helpful. The question is, well, okay, if we're only supposed to think about certain things, how do I control my thoughts? Because if you're anything like me, you're easily distracted. And, you know, you're very often seeing one thing, another thing. And while I'm sitting here giving sermons to you, little things happen on my screen that I wasn't expecting or, or things come up or it doesn't go where I wanted it to. And it's terribly distracting and it changes my whole thought process, you know, and I get on another track completely. We know what this is like in life. There's a lot of information coming at us, and especially in this day and age, in the age of media, there is constantly something trying to attract our attention, trying to distract our thoughts. So how do we control our thoughts? Well, a couple of suggestions here. The first one is this, control the sensory input. Control the sensory input. Limit your intake of secular material. And by secular, I mean, it, the word literally means that which is in the moment. And when we talk about secular, we talk about it in contrast to godly because it appeals to those things that are momentary or not eternal. So in other words, a secular life is a life lived without regard for eternity. That is not the Christian life. The Christian life is lived in regard to eternity all the time. In other words, we, we look at every moment and every day and every, every event is having eternal significance in things. So limit your intake of secular material. Let's look at Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 here. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And I believe we talked about this last week. But I want to focus more on the second verse here. It says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So there's some words there that remind us of the list we just reviewed, good and acceptable, perfect. Uh, but how do we do this? Well, First of all, notice the command is do not be conformed to this world. And in the sense that that's given in the original language, it's, it's literally could be translated as stop being conformed to this world. And I prefer to give it to you that way. Stop being conformed to this world because the world is trying to conform us all the time. The world is not passive. Remember, the Bible says that the world is under the control of the evil one, that he is called the God of this world 
or the prince of this world, and the world follows after him and his ways. And so this world system and everything that comes at you from the world, and that's in opposition to God, those things are actively trying to conform you to the pattern of this world. And this command is stop that. Stop being conformed. Stop letting it change you and affect you and shape you. But the imperative goes, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So in other words, this renewal that takes place, this transformation that takes place is something that is occurring in the mind. And the promise here is a great thing that this mind, then the renewing of the mind transforms us. It's not necessary for us truly as believers to be taking in so much news and entertainment. See, the great deception of the evil one is that those things are neutral. That, oh, they're made by good people, they're made by nice people like me, and yeah, they're not Christians, but they're good people nonetheless. They kiss their their kids and, and, and put them in bed at night, and they, they love their parents, and they take care of them, and they, they get do favors for their neighbor and things like that. These are good people, yes. Yes, from our perspective and in comparison to many people, people can be considered good. But the problem is, alongside the standards of God, and alongside the truth of the gospel, they are unwitting accomplices with the God of this world unless their hearts are guided by the Holy Spirit of God. Even if it is neutral, or even if it's Christian, we have to give this media the test, is it helpful? Does it fit the description that we just saw in Philippians Chapter 4, verse 8. In other words, is it true? Is it commendable? Is it worthy of praise? Does it pass those things? And if it doesn't, the question we ought to be asking ourselves is then why take it in? Why watch it? Why be a part of it? Now, I've struggled with this personally because I've had two jobs for the last 14 years. And sometimes I get home at the end of the day and honestly, I feel entitled to a rest at the end of the day. And so I want to sit down and I want to turn on television. But the problem is that that is not rest. Now, true, it does. it's not as engaging as studying the Word of God or making a phone call to another member of the church or sharing the gospel with somebody. But studies have shown very clearly that when we entertain ourselves in front of the television or any other screen for that matter, it is not a restful state. It is somewhere between sleeping and waking. And isn't that interesting? It's a highly suggestible state, by the way. And it's a state in which we are likely to consume the information and internalize it and eventually think about it. I'm telling you, if you feel like you're entitled to rest at the end of the day, you are far better off taking a short nap and then waking up rested and engaging with the Word of God and talking to your family. Play a game with your family. If you're going to entertain yourself, entertain yourself with a, some kind of a board game or cards or something with your family. Best yet would be a Bible study or something like that. But nevertheless, there are things better than consuming the entertainment and the news of the day. Even if it's so-called Christian news or right-wing news, or whatever, the news that you agree with that's supposed to be more positive, supposed to be the truth, real journalism, um, those things you have to ask, are these things beneficial to me, according to this definition in Philippians 4.8? So wrong thinking yields wrong feelings. And both those can affect then the heart and lead to anxiety and even despair. And it has been my experience in the last year with all the difficulties, all the political turmoil and the COVID-19 lockdowns and things of this nature, that those who are most in despair are those who are taking in the most news. Now, I'm not saying to completely cut it out. We have to have some idea of what's going on in the world, uh, if nothing else, how to respond to it biblically, how to help people through them. 
But I want to remind you what it says in 1 Corinthians 10, 23. It says this, it says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Yes, you, we are free to take in whatever kind of art or entertainment or, or things that we technically were free to do those things according to the gospel, but if those things are not helpful, if they're not edifying, those things which build us up, why are we partaking in them? We are not to love the things of the world. The things of this world are passing away. We are to love God. He is the eternal one. We are to be holy. And Paul describes this as the temple of the Holy Spirit. So we shouldn't partake in things that we would not be comfortable doing in the presence of Jesus or one another. And if the Holy Spirit of God is in us, and that says Christ is in us, well then he's experiencing these things with us. Let's not take him anywhere that wouldn't be fitting. This is how we can guard our hearts and our minds. This is how we can take the, the positive position here. So I want to get back then to uh, Philippians 4.8. I want to talk about a few, few other things there. Actually, let's go back to our outline momentarily here. So we want to decrease the secular coming into our minds. We also want to increase the godly. And this is the positive part of the command. You know, negative part is let's not do these things. And honestly, it's hard to say, don't do this. When you see that speed limit sign on the side of the road, it just makes you want to speed all the more. And when somebody says, don't touch us, the first thing you want to do is touch it. If you don't believe this, try watching a toddler for a day. It's like everything that they know they're not supposed to do is in color. Everything else is in black and white. And that's our nature. That's our sinful human nature that we want to go against the rules. So I'm not just going to say, don't do this, don't do that. I'm going to give you positives. I'm going to give you replacements for those things. And they are things that with prayer and with working these things out and with fellowship, these will become more to be desired than all the other things you replaced. Increase your intake of godly material. And how do we do that? Well, there's a couple ways we do that. And they're not on my outline here, so I'll help you in these ways. First of all, be filled with God's word. I want to take you to Psalm 19. And what I want to show you here is the benefits of being filled with God's Word. Did you know the longest chapter in the Bible is Psalm 119? Do you know what the subject matter of that chapter is? It's the Word of God. This is very important. And in Jesus' prayer about us in the garden, He asked the Lord to sanctify us in the truth. In other words, our sanctification is is dependent upon the truth. That is the tool that God is going to use to make us more like Christ. And Christ finishes that request of God, your word is truth. In other words, it is the truth. It is the word of God that is going to transform us. It is the word of God that's going to be bring the renewal of the mind. It is the word of God that is going to bring us the greatest benefit. So be filled with God's word, reading it, studying it, meditating upon it, pondering these things. Look what it says here in Psalm 19 verses 7 through 9. It says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the mind, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing in the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Now, here's what I want to point out in these verses to you. Look at the words here. Law, testimony, precepts, commandments, rules. All those words are another way to say God's word, the word of God. The psalmist is being poetic to avoid repetition. And it's also being poetic using all these different words to speak of the word of God by saying it's all encompassing everything that God has for you is what this 
psalmist is talking about, cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation. Now look at the words that he uses to describe the law or the word of God. He says, they're perfect, sure, right, clean, pure, true, and righteous. Does that sound a lot like Philippians 4, 8? I think it should. I think it does. It sounds a lot like the passage we're looking at. And now look at the results as we go through these verses in order. Reviving the soul, making wise the simple, rejoicing the heart, enlightening the eyes. This is what the Word of God can do. It is the word that sanctifies, as we talked about. It is the word of God that purifies. It instructs us and ultimately molds us into the image of Christ. It is also the hearing of the gospel that saves us, the word of God that saves. So to be filled with his word, we are most equipped to share the truth. Do you understand that you are the gatekeeper of salvation for many of your friends and family? They're not going to hear it from anyone else. And in order for you, for them to hear it, you have to proclaim it. And in order for you to proclaim it, you have to think about these things. You have to think about the gospel. You have to know the scriptures. You have to fill your mind with them so that they flow out of you, that the Holy Spirit can use you. And yes, it's the Holy Spirit that's sovereign in the salvation of people, but it is you that the Holy Spirit uses. And it is the scripture that is in your mind and in your heart that he will use to convict the sinner and bring many to salvation through you. So the first thing we want to do and the most important thing we can do is to fill our minds and to fill the void with the word of God. The next thing we want to do is we want to Address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Look at Ephesians 5.19, where he's describing the functional church, the church that is mutually submitted to one another. This is a parallel to the letter to the Philippians and that it talks about the mind of Christ, the mindset of humility that we talked about some sermons ago. Here in Ephesians 5.19, he says that uh, those who are in unity and are submitting to one another and are in the spirit. It is this, they are addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. We ought to be addressing one another with the words of God, with the positive things of God. Learn the art of speaking the good things of God with one another. Elevate conversations whenever you have the opportunity, when you're with a brother or sister in Christ. Elevate it above the weather, above the local news, above politics, and speak about the Word of God. Speak about your Sunday school lesson. Speak about the sermon that you heard. Now, this goes against some of our culture because the culture says polite people don't discuss religion. Well, humbug on that. That's a lie of the evil one. We must discuss the things of God. And a question is, well, uh, what if we don't agree? I'm afraid if I talk about things with people at church, you know, we don't agree on some things. Well, first of all, you probably already know which areas you disagree with most people in the church on. And you can avoid those. But honestly, aren't all believers supposed to be seekers of the truth? And is there not only one truth of God? Part of seeking the truth is to work these things out together in a fellowship. And we can hold an opinion, but we better not hold an opinion too tightly for the Word of God to change it. We have to be humble enough to admit when our position is wrong. We have to be humble enough to allow the Word of God to come against our opinions if our opinion is right, the Word of God will prove it so. But if our opinion is wrong and the Word of God proves it, we had better be ready in humility to repent and so accept the truth. Now, this is critically important because this is really a key to our sanctification. Remember, 
the Lord said, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. If we are resisting the word of God because our brother holds one opinion and we have a slightly different opinion and pride is keeping us from giving in, then indeed we are resisting God himself. Anyway, addressing one another in this way is primarily about praising God, not discussing doctrine per se. This is about sharing what you read. This is about praising God for good news that has come, for answers to prayers. How often do we pray for somebody and then, you know, they they get through whatever it is we've been praying for and we, we forget to share that. Let's share the good things. Let's share the good news. Let's share about what God is doing and how he's changing you and affecting you and how he has strengthened you to get through these times by by his word. Share those things with one another and encourage one another. And when a verse strikes you in a certain way, text it to a friend uh, or call a friend and talk about it. Listen to what I learned today. And those are the conversations that will build the church Those are the conversations that will strengthen us together and bring us into unity because we're ultimately unified in Christ, not in ourselves. So the third thing I want to tell you, the first was the word. The second was to address one another in spiritual ways. The third is this, rejoice and pray. I know that's two things, but I lumped them together because I'm going to refer you to last sermon number 13 in the series. What you must know is if you pray for these things, you will receive them. If you pray to have more of the word of God affect you and change you and mold you, God will answer that prayer in the affirmative. If you pray to rejoice more, to see what is praiseworthy, to think about what is praiseworthy and to praise it out loud to someone else, he will grant you that in the affirmative. Because remember, Jesus promised, was whatsoever you ask in my name, this I will give you. And in my name means according to my will. And believe me, Jesus Christ wants you praising more, wants you thinking about these things. He wants you sharing these things with one another. He will answer these prayers in the affirmative. This is a wonderful prayer of God. Begin to pray for what God wants and not just what you want. And you will see things change in your life and in your heart. Rejoice and pray. We are fighting here our sinful natures. We are fighting the ways of the world. We are fighting the evil one. So we have to have the power of God and we bring the power of God into our situation when we pray. And that brings me to my last point. And the last point is this. If you really want your thoughts to be under control, If you really want to dwell on these things that are uplifting rather than the things that pull you down, if you really want positive change in your life and in the lives of your family, in your workplace, in your church, if you really want these things to happen, we must have a change of heart because all of these things I've talked about today are impossible without the power of God. And the Spirit of God does not dwell in anyone apart from salvation in Jesus Christ. So this is a call to be saved. You cannot change your own heart. You must trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus came and took the wrath of God upon himself on the cross. In other words, he took the punishment for our sins upon himself so that we could be saved. And he was raised from the dead to prove that all of that was true. And now he extends the offer to you for in the free gift of salvation to be given to you of eternal life. If you will trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and repent of your sins, Turn from them, not to do them again. Your desire to turn from your sins and to turn to God is a sign that the Holy Spirit of God is working with you, that he is active in you, and that he will bring it to be that you can be saved in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now repent of your sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's easy to say, and I don't know where you are in this process. If you don't believe 
Ask God to help you. If you don't want to repent, if you're still liking your sins and there's things you don't want to give up, I challenge you this. Pray to God about those. Say, you need to make me want to give this up, Lord. And he will help. He will send his spirit to give you power. Now, I'm not saying he's going to snap his fingers. It's going to be an overnight sensation for you. Sometimes it is for people. But I am saying that he will work these things in the long term if you trust in him. Ask him. He'll send his help. He'll send the Holy Spirit to convict you of your sins, to grant you faith, to repentance, and save you in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we pray this day indeed for your intervention with each and every one of us because, Lord, there is not a soul alive that cannot benefit from what we have heard today because the very beginning of of thinking about what is right and true and honorable and just and commendable and worthy of praise, the very first step to this is to have the power of the Holy Spirit to have salvation in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you will work in the hearts of those this day that need salvation and show them their great need. Show them the great terror of your wrath and show them the great hope of salvation in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would grant everyone within hearing the faith to respond to this message in whatever way they need to. I pray that your spirit will work with them to guide them into truth. I pray that your word will be effective, that the words that we have said today, Lord, ring true because they are your words and not mine. And I pray, Lord, today that you work past my weaknesses and you use this message despite my shortcomings, but that you would overshadow me in your power to change, your power to save, your power to affect what we think about, and therefore you affect the outcome in our lives. Lord, I pray this day you'll grant us understanding and that indeed you'll grant us to know you more this day and be lifted up by it that we may lift up others. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. Thank you for spending time with me today. I pray that it's been a benefit to you. And I want to encourage you, if you have any questions whatsoever, if you need help in any of these things, if you need help finding a church in your area or you're having personal problems, please email us uh, or come visit us at White's Run Baptist Church. You'll find us in Easter Day, Kentucky. If you search for that, you'll find the one and only Easter Day, Kentucky. It's actually within the city of or the county of Carroll in Kentucky and the zip code of Carrollton, Kentucky. And visit us on our website at whitethrun.org or email us at whitethronbaptist at gmail.com. Those emails are answered personally. And you will not be put on some funky mailing list and get all kinds of weird stuff. We're just going to reply to what you ask and we'll be as helpful as we can. May God bless you.